My name's Anne Phillips. I'm from the Gender Institute, and it's, it's a great pleasure to welcome you to this uh, first uh, public lecture in this term series of Gendering the Social Sciences, um, and to welcome Michael Kimmel as our lecturer tonight. Um, Michael is a uh, um, distinguished professor um, from the uh, State University of New York at Stony, at Stony Brook, in, uh, is in the sociology department. Um, and is uh, lecturing tonight on the theme of gender and men's studies, uh, peril or promise. Um, I, think you're, I think I'm right, you're also a visiting professor at the Institute uh, for Women and Gender Studies at Oslo. Um, yeah. And uh, has, I mean, in fact, we were very fortunate to catch hold of Michael for tonight's event because he was, it was in the course of uh, various lectures that he's giving um, across uh, Norway and Sweden. Um, now, I'm sure, I mean, I know he's, his work is certainly very well known to uh, students at the Gender Institute, I imagine much more widely known. Uh, among his many publications are Guy Land, uh, The Perilous World Where Boys Become Men, uh, The Gendered Society, A Guy's Gay to Feminism, Manhood in America. Uh, the book he's working on at the moment uh, is Angry White Men, which is about the relationship between masculinities and, um, and, and the, uh, the right. Um, uh, he's also founding editor of the journal Men and Masculinities and uh, co-editor with uh, Bob Connell and Jeff Hearn of uh, Sage's Handbook on Men and Masculinities. And in fact, Jeff Hearn will also be coming to LSE later this term, giving a, uh, a seminar at the Gender Institute in February, so you can check on the, on the website for that as well. Uh, the format for tonight is uh, Michael will speak for 45 to 50 minutes, and then we have uh, 30 minutes or so for question and answer. Um, and then uh, there's a reception at the Gender Institute for anyone who's uh, free to uh, join us there, which is uh, just you have to walk down Kingsway in the freezing cold and uh, at the bottom of Kingsway turn left into Aldwych and it's the fifth floor of Columbia House or just follow, uh, follow the rest of us. Uh, so now um, can I just uh, welcome Michael Kimmel uh, to this lecture on men, gender and men's studies. Thank you. Thanks very much. So is this microphone working all right? Can you all hear me? Great. Terrific. Thank you. Thank you so much, Anne. And it, it, I'm really, really honored to be here and, uh, and very, very happy to, uh, to be invited to speak with you. Um, I just will say informally a couple of things uh, very quickly. Um, uh, in anticipation of my, uh, my friend and colleague uh, Craig Calhoun's arrival, let me just tell you that he is an extraordinary, uh, extraordinary intellectual and you're really quite lucky. Um, I will say two other things. I brought you copies of my books for your library. Thanks, um, and, uh, and so, um, and I'll tell you a little bit about what I'm gonna talk about, but today is Martin Luther King Day in the States. So I thought I would just begin with, uh, with just a quote that I found from his letter from a Birmingham jail in 1963. He said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And I just thought that that might be a nice sort of framing moment for our conversation tonight. So let me tell you what I'm going to talk about. Uh, my, 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 my talk basically has two parts. In the first, I'm going to talk a little bit 
about what I think academically, intellectually, uh, the project of masculinity studies has been by saying what we basically have learned from women's studies. Um, and to, sit, to frame that conversation about what I think we know or the kinds of issues that I think we've been facing. And this is in anticipation for many of you that you're going to be teaching this sort of topic at some point or interested in these sorts of things. So sort of masculinity studies 101. And then, uh, but I'm going to turn to make another kind of argument uh, mid midway because I'm also going to make a political kind of argument as well about what stake men have in gender equality and why men should support gender equality. Now, in order to do that and to try to make it somewhat seamless, let me just begin um, by, by, by saying something that I think is, it, by, by introducing this topic, by basically saying uh, this as my greeting to you. Good evening, earthlings. Now, why do I, what is the major premise behind that? Well, those of you who have been following the discourse about masculinity or male-female relationships or masculinity and femininity would know that, that the, the most common theme in all of that kind of work is that men and women are from different planets. That men are from Mars and women are from Venus. How many of you have read that book? Okay. Um, Virtually, you know, this is actually quite, quite common for me. What I find is that, you know, a, a smattering of people who have read it, but everybody knows it. Everybody knows that men and women are from different planets, that they're, any type of cross-gender communication is an event of intergalactic proportions um, <laughs> because we are so fundamentally different. And this is the prevailing discourse. Now, here's what you might not know about that book. That book, Men are from Mars, Women are from Venus, is the best-selling self-help book in world history. That book alone has sold 17 million copies in hardcover. That book, now not, that doesn't include all of the spin-off uh, products, uh, the pen and pencil sets, the baseball hats, the DVDs, the CD-ROMs, the videotapes, the, the audio tapes, the, um, uh, the board game, the TV show, and my personal favorite, you, that's, there's, a, there's a board game, Men are from Mars, Women are from Venus, but that you could also, this is so American, the therapy franchise. <laughs> you can learn to do Mars and Venus therapy. Takes two days. You go out to corporate headquarters in Northern California, where else, and you, and you, get, your, you get your certificate, you hang up a shingle, I do Mars and Venus therapy, and you send 10% back to headquarters, like a tithe. So, this is the prevailing thing that I find among my students at, in, in, in American universities. So this is a common discourse about men and women, is that they're so fundamentally different, they might as well be from different planets. And here's the thing that's so interesting to me about that, is every day that you are a student here at the LSE, if you are a student here at the LSE, you are living the refutation of that model. How do I know this? Because the most successful educational reform of the entire 20th century was co-education. And co-education assumes you can sit in the same class, listen to the same lecture, read the same text, take the same exam, be graded by the same criteria, and nobody but nobody goes to the dean of students and says, well, like, I'm a Martian and my professor's a Venusian, so like, don't I get extra credit or, or a translator? Because on every single, the psychologists will tell you that on every single measurable behavior, attitude, and trait, men and women are far more similar than we are different. The real story between men and women actually is the variations among men and among women, which are far greater, in fact, 
than any mean differences that you might find between women and men. So that's why I say, you know, greetings, earthlings. But I don't think you could sell 17 million copies in hardcover of a book that said, we're all earthlings. <laughs> so there is something in our culture that wants there to be this fundamental difference. And I think that's important to explore as well. So let me start this conversation about men and men's studies or masculinity studies, as I call it, by starting where I think the conversation begins, and that is with what changes in women's lives. Because you can't really um, begin the conversation without realizing that it is women who, in fact, one of the signal changes of our era is that, the, you know, the biggest, probably the biggest change in terms of how we think is women made gender visible. We now know that gender is one of the organizing principles of social life. That gender is one of the foundations of your identity. Forty years ago, we didn't know this. Forty years ago, if you went to graduate school and said you wanted to study gender, there was not one course you could take. When was the Gender Institute founded? Uh, 93. 93, okay. So, so 40 years ago, right, there was no Gender Institute at the LSE. 40 years ago, there were no gender studies courses. If you wanted to study gender, there was nothing. If you wanted to study women, in my field, sociology, there was one course you could take. It was called Marriage and the Family. That was like <laughs> the ladies' auxiliary of social sciences. Today, of course, as you know, there's women's studies courses, gender studies everywhere. And that's the first signal change in, in, in the beginning, I think, of talking about masculinity studies is that women made gender visible. Now, I'm gonna also talk a little bit about some of the other changes in women's lives. So I'll just br briefly say what those are because I think they frame part of the political discussion as well. Other changes besides the signal important one, of course, are changes in the labor force. Half of the American labor force today is female. Right? This is, and I often do this, now I, this is a, to me this is a normal size lecture in, in my, at, at Stony Brook where I teach. So I would, I would ask my students, how many of the women in here, let me ask you actually, how many of the women in here expect to have full-time jobs outside the home when you graduate? Let me see your hands. Now please keep your hands raised if your mother has or had a full-time job outside the home uninterrupted for 10 years. These are mothers. Okay, keep your hands up if grandmother. Okay, thank you. Okay, so here's what I saw. I saw virtually every hand go up for you. I saw about half to two-thirds of the hands for mom, and I saw maybe 10% of the hands for grandma. In this room, what you see is that women's expectation and experiences in the labor force have changed fundamentally in three generations, which has led to a third area of change in women's lives, and that is the balance between work and family. Women used to believe they had to choose between having careers and having family lives. Of course, today women expect and assume that they can balance work and family. And the third, uh, the, and the fourth change in women's lives, this is the hardest one for us guys to, to, to wrap our heads around. The fourth change in women's lives is around sex. This is hard for us, because we thought the sexual revolution was all about us. <laughs> because, you know, you think about it, the sexual revolution promised more access to more partners with fewer commitments. Could you come up with a more masculine sexual revolution than that? But if you look at the mountain of sex research data that has been collected over the past, say, 30 or 40 years, there's only one conclusion that you would come to, and that is it's women's sexuality that's changed. And the easiest way to summarize that change is to say women today feel entitled to pleasure. 
Women know that they can like sex, want sex, go for it, get horny. And I'm not talking about some bohemian enclave in like San Francisco or Greenwich Village here. I'm talking about mainstream, you know, mainstream European American women um, who believe that they are enti as entitled to pleasure as men are. So these are four enormous changes. Now what I'm going to do is I want to take these and I want to sort of begin to apply them to men's lives. The first one I want to talk about intellectually, and the next few I want to talk about politically. So let me take that first area. Women made gender visible. The problem with this insight, that gender is a foundation of social life, that it's a building, foundational building block of identity, the problem with this for men is that most men don't know that gender matters. Mo to most men, gender is invisible. We don't know it's as important to us as women understand it is to them. Gender remains relatively invisible to men. And this is political. I want to tell you my story of how I first began to think about this. Um, this, is a, this is a story that takes place, now those of you who are well steeped in your feminist theory, this is a story that takes place 30 years ago. And it could not happen today for reasons that will be immediately obvious to you. But it's how gender first became visible to me. Um, 30 years ago, I was finishing my PhD, which I'm sure all of you have read. It's about uh, 17th century French and English tax policy. <laughs> it's, a, it's a study of rent in, in, in France and ship money in England. Um, so uh, the word gender, masculinity, sex, that never doesn't show up at all. So, um, but I was finishing my, my dissertation, and I was interested in these issues. And you know, a bunch of us got together, and you know, you're graduate student, many of you, you know, how, you know how this works. You get all excited about some new idea that you've met, you know, that, that people are talking about. And so a bunch of us got together, and we said, you know, there's an explosion. This is 30 years ago. There's an explosion of writing and thinking in feminist theory, but there's no courses yet. So we did what graduate students typically do. We said, let's have a study group. We'll get together once a week, we'll read some text, we'll talk about it, we'll have a potluck. So each week, 11 women and me got together <laughs> and we would read some text in feminist theory and have a conversation. And during one of our meetings, I witnessed a conversation between two women that changed everything for me. One of the women was white and one was black. The white woman said, here's the part that's gonna sound real anachronistic now. The white woman said, all women have the same experience as women. Oh. Yeah, right? I know, right? I told you it was going to sound anachronistic. All women are similarly situated in patriarchy, and therefore, all women have a kind of intuitive solidarity or sisterhood. And the black woman said, I'm not so sure. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. So the black woman says to the white woman, when you wake up in the morning and you look in the mirror, what do you see? And the white woman said, I see a woman. And the black woman said, you see, that's the problem. Because when I wake up in the morning and I look in the mirror, she said, I see a black woman. To me, race is visible. But to you, it's invisible. You don't see it. And then she said something really startling. She said, that's how privilege works. Privilege is invisible to those who have it. And I would say, it is a luxury, I would say, to the white people sitting in this room not to have to think about race every split second of your life. Privilege is invisible to those who have it. Now remember, I was the only man in this group. So when I heard this, I went, oh. And somebody said, well, what was that reaction? And I said, well, when I wake up in the morning and I look in the mirror, I see a human being. 
I'm kind of the generic person. You know, I'm a middle-class white man. I have no race, no class, no, no, no gender. I'm, I'm, I'm universally generalizable. Um, so I like to think that was the moment I became a middle-class white man. The moment when class and race uh, and, and gender were also about me. I had to actually start thinking about them. And it had been privileged. It had kept it invisible to me for such a long time. Well, I wish I could tell you that this story ends 30 years ago in that little seminar, but I was reminded of it quite recently at my university because I walked in uh, to, I, I have a female colleague. She and I give uh, lectures together, uh, and so I'll go to give a guest lecture for her in her class. We both teach sociology of gender, or she'll give a guest lecture uh, for me in my class. So I walk into the lecture room to give a lecture in her course, and, this one, and as I walk in, one of the students looks up and goes, Oh, finally, an objective opinion. <laughs> because all that semester, every time my female colleague opened her mouth, what my students saw was a woman. I mean, Anne, if you were to stand up in front of my students and say, there is structural inequality based on gender you know, in the United States, they would say, well, of course you'd say that. You're a woman. You're biased. When I say it, they go, wow, that's interesting. Is that going to be on the test? How do you spell structural? So look. This is important. Those of you in the back, I hope you can see. This is what objectivity looks like. You know, disembodied Western rationality? That would be me. Um, sometimes I think that that's why men wear ties. Because if you are going to embody disembodied Western rationality, you need a signifier. And what could be a better signifier than a garment that at one end is a noose and the other end points to the genitals? <laughs> Let's face it, that is mind-body dualism right there. That's for you, Vic. <laughs> um, my Kantian moment. Uh, so, so, this is, so this idea that men embody objectivity, I mean, think of this for, for a moment. Think about how many times you've had a discussion or a conversation with a man who said, wait, now, let's look at this objectively. The translation from the Martian would be, let's look at this from my point of view. <laughs> now, why is this so important? Because making gender visible is the first move of masculinity studies. It is also the first move politically of making gender possible to be thought about among boys and men. So, and it is political because it bumps up against the invisibility which is held in place by privilege. So making masculinity visible is a political, a political task as well as simply an academic one. Now when we do that, here's the other things that we've learned, is that you can't just make gender visible. Because making gender alone visible would lead you to sort of a Mars-Venus world. But in fact, what we've learned from gender studies is also that masculinities are plural. So this title of the journal and the title of all the, the work that we do generally makes a plural masculinities because our task is basically to say that men's lives and, ma and ideologies of masculinity vary by class, by race, by ethnicity, by sexuality, by age, by region, by religion. Imagine for a moment two American men one is 75, black, gay, and lives in Chicago. The other is white, 19 years old, heterosexual, and lives on a farm 100 miles outside of Chicago. Now, don't you think they'd have some different ideas about what it means to be a man? 
And don't you think they'd have some similarities? To me, the interesting intellectual questions are both. One, how does race, class, age, sexuality shape your ide ideology of masculinity? And how does gender, your, the ideology of masculinity, in some ways get reshaped and reformed in those, in those, different, in those different arenas? So masculinity, so the second thing that we learn, not only is that ge gender it matters, but the second major thing that we learned is that gender is diverse. And the third major thing that we learned is that gender is also hierarchical, that it's about power. And, and, and among the very foundational insights of masculinity studies was that there are two different types of hierarchies. There's hierarchies of men as a group over women as a group, and that there's also hierarchies of men over, some men over other men. And that both of these are, uh, operate in different ways at different times, and that they're particularly important. Um, now, the reason that this is important is because this meant that when we began to talk with men about masculinity, about gender relations, and about gender inequality, what we often heard from men is that the analysis that fe not 70s feminism offered didn't resonate for men. Because the old analysis was, was probably true for women. The old analysis was, some of you may remember these kinds of conversations, um, that men, I mean, th this is obviously empirically true, men are in power, so to speak, right? If, and this is a social, aggregate, institutional level. I mean, every single board of every single co corporation, of every single university, every single legislature, every single parliament, you know, men run the show. So the first insight of feminism was men are in power, men have power. And the second insight of feminism was, was for, for individually for women, women don't have power and women don't feel powerful. So feminism was designed in a way to, to redress both. One, to change the aggregate power imbalance and also to empower individual women to make different kinds of choices, to have larger range of options in their lives. So you apply this willingly to men's lives. Men have the power and the assumption was men feel powerful. And that's when the men would look at you like you were from another planet. They would say, what are you talking about? I don't have any power. My boss bosses me around, my kids boss me around, my wife bosses me around. I'm completely powerless. So men, although all the aggregate power in the world doesn't trickle down to men in individually feeling powerful. So all the men's movements of the 1970s and 1980s that were anti-feminist played on this feeling of powerlessness despite any aggregate sense of men's power. That was irrelevant. What they said was, you don't feel powerful? You're right, the women have all the power now. Let's go get it back. Or they would say, you know what, you don't feel powerful? You're right, here, come with us, we'll go off to the woods, here's the power chanting, the power drumming, the power rituals, we'll get power. Sort of like a po power lunches, power ties, as if power was an, a fashion accessory. This is the idea of the, the voice of powerlessness. So in masculinity studies, our position has been that both statements are true and important, despite the fact that men have, aggregate, in the aggregate social institutional level, so much power, men don't feel powerful. And it's that gap that we have to address, rather than privilege one side or the other. So no more of the men have to give up the power, because they don't feel powerful to begin with. You need to take their feelings seriously, even if they're not an adequate analysis of their situation. So the, so the three things that I've so mentioned so far, the big insights that we've gotten is gender matters, it's plural, 
and it's about power. Now, let me move then to talk a little bit about why so many men resist gender equality as a political position and why so many, uh, and how to, and, and then begin to talk a little bit for a few minutes about how I think we can engage that question. So here I'll tell you another story. Because this is a story about, okay, so, so now, you, now let's say we want to make gender visible. We want to engage men in the conversation that feminist women have been having in women's studies and gender studies courses for the past 30 years. We want to find what are the entry points for men. How can men enter this, this conversation? And so, and oftentimes you get a significant amount of resistance. No, it's not about me, or they don't like me, or they hate us, or they're anti-male, or something like that. But I think it's more than that. So let me tell you another story about what the obstacle is to engaging men, and then see if I can sort of in encourage you to, to, to engage nonetheless. Um, I'll tell you a story about uh, 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 my, uh, an appearance on a, on a TV show that I was on. Now, uh, this is a TV show that you're all familiar with, I'm sure, you know, a black female host comes out of Chicago. And, um, so I was on this TV talk show, and I should say, academics, we don't make very good talk show guests, typically. <laughs> Because, you know, the, academic, the, the talk show format has become so polarized, us, them, black, white, yes, no. And what do academics do? We get up and we go, well, it's a little more complicated than that. <laughs> you know, that is bad TV. So, um, so I was shocked to be on the, the Oprah Winfrey show, opposite four angry white men. These were men who believed that they were the victims of reverse discrimination, also known as affirmative action that they were qualified for jobs, qualified for promotions, which they did not get, and boy, were they angry about it. And the title of this particular show was a quote from one of these men. And the quote was, and the line was, a black woman stole my job. <laughs> so he had, that was what he actually said, um, and he was invited to repeat it, since that was the title of the show, and sure, sure enough, he did. So these guys all told their stories. I was qualified for job, qualified for promotion, didn't get it. These women, you know, a black woman stole my job. And then, you know, she turns to me. Those of you who've ever watched Oprah, um, she had an amazing capacity to be both simultaneously admiring and condescending. <laughs> so she said, you know, at, at, at the academics in the audience, you'll, you'll recognize this as me. So what do you think about that, professor? <laughs> So, so, I, so I said, I have one question for these guys, and it's about the title of the show, A Black Woman Stole My Job. Actually, it's about one word in the title. I want to know about the word my. Where did you get the idea it was your job? Why is it the title of the show, A Black Woman Got The Job, or A Black Woman Got A Job? Because without confronting men's sense of entitlement, we'll never understand why so many men believe that gender equality is a loss for men. We believe this is a level playing field. So any policy that tilts it even a little bit, we think, oh my God, water's rushing uphill. It's reverse discrimination against us, right? But let's be clear about this. You know, white men in, in the industrial, in Britain, in, in the US, are the beneficiaries of the single greatest affirmative action program in the history of the world. It is called the history of the world. <laughs> so, so this sense of entitlement often keeps men from engaging and, believe, and leads men to believe that gender equality is a zero-sum game. Now what I'd like to do then is to take this notion, 
that we think it's a zero-sum game. And I want to turn it around because I believe actually that gender equality as a political, uh, 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 politically is actually a win-win for both women and, and, and men. And I think there's good data actually to show this. Um, so what I'm going to do actually is I'm going to talk about those last areas of change in women's lives, the workplace, balancing work and family, and sexuality, and talk a little bit politically about how I think actually we can engage men to embrace gender equality as a political position. Um, and here what I would, and I think that the evidence here is pretty, is pretty interesting. Um, you know, we have this discourse. One of the things that you talk, I, I did this book, Guyland, and I interviewed 400 young men, 16 to 26, all across the United States, mostly on college campuses, but pretty much, you know, in every state that, that I could travel to. Um, and one of the things that I found consistently is that young men assume, assume that if they're straight, they assume that their wives will work outside the home and be equally committed to her career as they are. They assume that they will be involved fathers, really good fathers, really engaged fathers, far better fathers than their own fathers were. They assume this. Well, how do we talk about being a good parent or a good father these days, um, you know, an involved parent? We have this discourse, at least we have it in the States. You probably have bumped up against this b before as well. You've heard this quality time, <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know about you. How many of you are parents? Okay, those of you who are parents, you know, quality time is a complete myth, right? You know, quality. You don't say to your, your kid, "Come home early from uh, fr from school on Friday, and we'll throw that football around, and you know, we'll bond." Because your kid's going to say, "Oh, sorry, Dad, I have plans, but I'll text you." I mean, <laughs> you know. I believe in quantity time, you know? I believe in putting in the long hours doing the routine household tasks that no one gets an award for. Let me tell you, those moments, those awe moments, those, you know, like, not to be too autobiographical, the 43rd time you are watching Toy Story with your six-year-old, and he nuzzles into you and says, oh, Daddy, this is so great, I love you so much. And you realize at that moment this would not have happened had I not watched Toy Story 42 <laughs> other times. <laughs> I have memorized that movie. <laughs> that it, so this is, so I believe in quantity time. I believe in putting in the long hours, doing those routine household tasks that no one gets an award for. So why should men do it? And by the way, um, you know, so this is, so as a, a choice about being a good dad, an involved parent, we have to be more involved in actual doing the practices. Nurturing is not a mystical state of being that you need to go off into the woods and do the chanting and the nurturing thing in order to get, it doesn't descend. Nurturing, as we social scientists like to say, is a set of practices. It's things people do. When we do that, we will be nurturing. Now, why should we? Well, here's where the data get very interesting. There are two studies that I want to talk about. One is done by a, a, a psychologist at the University of Washington named John Gottman. If you've ever read his work, he's, he's the marriage doc. Right? He's, he has written all these popular books about how to have a successful marriage, how to have a, 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 you know, a, a really thriving marriage. And, um, and what's, what he finds, what it's, and, he's, um, so, and, and he's a psychologist, so he has all of these sort of advice, sort of, like, sort of advice about how to do that. And the other is a work of a sociologist named Scott Coltrane, um, who at UC, right, formerly at UC Riverside, who has looked at um, gender equality and family life across many different cultures. And here's what the two of their researchers find. Now, as a sociologist, I have to say, when Gottman does work on thriving marriages, on successful marriages, 
It's really kind of interesting because as a sociologist, those of you who have ever done sort of looked at the sociology of the family, we only have one variable that we look at, intact or divorced. Right? And as you know, there are a lot of intact marriages that, you know, some couples like hate each other's guts but stay together for some reason, and others like are completely in love 50 years in and they're still holding hands and not just they keep each other standing up, but, you know, they're, they're, they're completely in love and they're sitting at a restaurant gazing lovingly at each other. And everybody, you know, anybody would likely say, you know, how do they do it? What makes a successful marriage succeed? What makes a thriving marriage thrive? Here's what Gottman finds. He finds that the higher the level of gender equality, the, the, the more likely the marriage is to thrive. Gender equality in the couple is the best predictor for him. The most egalitarian marriages are the ones that thrive. Now, that's not just stay together, because, because actually the relationship is curvilinear. Very traditional marriages stay together as well, but they don't thrive. They're, the couples don't report high levels of marital satisfaction, but they do stay together. Um, so, now I'll switch to Coltrane's research. So how would you measure gender equality in a marriage? Well, what Coltrane does, serving, serving cross-culturally from pre-industrial cultures to post-industrial cultures, there are two variables that predict levels of, of gender equality, one for women, one for men. The, level of, the, the, the variable that predicts it for women is now remember, this is cross-cultural anthropological research, so it has to be a fairly broad, you know, a broad um, a variable. It's does the woman own property in her own name after marriage? Some measure of women's economic autonomy. And for men, it's quite simple. How much housework and childcare does the man do? The more housework and childcare he does, the greater the level of equality, Therefore, the more likely it is to thrive. Now, here's what the data show. Here's what Coltrane finds. That when men share housework and childcare, I'm not talking about, you know, we, when we talk about family work, family participation, American men have two phrases that we use, each of which has two words for what we do around the house. We help out and we pitch in. <laughs> um, and I'm suggesting we simplify that to one word, which is share. Why should we do that? Because, why should we share housework and childcare? Well, here's what the data say. First. When men share housework and childcare, their kids do better in school. When men share housework and childcare, their children have lower levels of absenteeism. They're much less likely to be diagnosed with ADHD. They're much less likely to see therapists. They're much less likely to be taking prescription medication. They have higher rates of achievement. So when men share housework and childcare, their kids are happier, healthier, and do better in school. Okay, maybe that's not enough of a motivation for men. When men share housework and childcare, their wives are happier. Well, duh. But not only are their wives happier, their wives are healthier. Their wives are less likely to go to therapists, less likely to be diagnosed with depression, less likely to be taking prescription medication. Well, maybe that's not enough for men. When men share housework and childcare, the men are healthier and happier. The more egalitarian the relationship, the less he smokes, the less he drinks, the less he takes recreational drugs, the more likely he is to go to a doctor for routine screenings, but the less likely he is to, to show up in the, in the emergency room. He, uh, the the more, less likely he is to be diagnosed with depression, take prescription medication, or see a psychiatrist. Men who share housework and childcare report much higher levels of marital satisfaction, as do their wives. Okay, maybe that's not enough of a, of a motivation for men. When men share housework and childcare, they have more sex. 
<laughs> now, of these four interesting findings, which one do you think Men's Health magazine put on its cover? <laughs> Housework makes her horny. <laughs> Not when she does it. But <laughs> now, before I go on, let me say, let me point out to the men in this room. These data are aggregate data over a very long period of time. So I don't encourage the men in this room to leave this lecture and go home and say, doing the dishes, honey. <laughs> this is aggregate over a really long period of time. But what I'm trying to suggest is that in some very fundamental ways, in terms of the relationships we have with children, the relationship we have with our, our, our friends, the relationship we have with our partners, the relationship we have with our wives, the relationships we have with our children, in every one of these arenas, men's, th that supporting gender equality in this most fundamental way in, the, in our relationships actually is a win-win for men. That the more egalitarian our relationships, the happier men will be. Now, this, it, this then is not at all a kind of Mars and Venus moment. This is an Earthling moment. There's, I, I actually think as an activist, um, uh, the, the other side of my work has been that, that for many years I've, I've been a, 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 an activist for gender equality and helped to found an organization some years ago called the National Organization for Men Against Sexism. Um, that in my work as an activist, making the case to men is it's, it's quite reasonable to make the, the ethical imperative case. It's right, gender equality is right, it's fair, it's just, it what is how we should, what we should do. Or it's possible to make um, a kind of constraint argument. Well, you can't do what you used to do any longer. But I find that it's also helpful to men to also understand that there's a there there, that there's a world beyond this one, that they can actually walk through it, and that it's not a terrible loss for men, but it actually enhances our lives. That supporting gender equality actually makes, us, makes it possible for us to live the kind of lives we actually say we want to live. Because if you ask men, Survey after survey suggests they want to have good relationships with their kids, they want to have good relationships with their friends, they want to have good relationships with women. And my, my contention is the route to that is by supporting, not by opposing gender equality. So the, the last thing that I would say about masculinity studies as an academic field is it remains accountable to feminism as a political movement and to gender and women's studies as, a, as the academic sort of wing of that, of that political movement, precisely because this is the route that we have found not only makes sense of our lives as men, but enables men to, to will enable men to live the lives they say they want. So let me close, let me see how I'm doing on time. Good. Yeah, yeah you're doing very well. Okay. We, I, you know, I'm a New Yorker, we tend to talk fast. Um, so, so in that case, um, let me then just then close just with one, with one line. Um, it, I, some years ago, I did this documentary history of men who had supported feminism from the founding of the, the United States in, in 1776. Uh, and I, I know what you're thinking, a book of a documentary history of men who'd supported feminism, right? The shortest book ever. But in fact, as you would find if you did one in Britain as well, it was actually quite a fat book. Because in, for every single campaign, every single issue that women have identified throughout our history, there have been men who stood up and supported it, quite visibly, quite vocally, or, quite, or quietly. And in one of the documents I found, written in 1916, on the eve of 
one of the great suffrage demonstrations. And like, as in London, in New York, the suffrage demonstrations often had a men's contingent. Uh, we had the Men's League for Women's Suffrage. Um, and in, and in, in London, the, the suffrage campaigns always had a men's, a, a men's contingent marching with banners supporting, the, supporting suffrage for women. This, this one writer, Floyd Dell, wrote this essay in, a, in, a, in the leftist magazine, The Masses, in 1916, on the eve of one of the great suffrage de demonstrations. And it was called Feminism for Men. And this is the first line of that article, and I'll just leave it as my conclusion. Feminism, he wrote, will make it possible for the first time for men to be free. Thank you very much. Well, many, many, many thanks to Michael for that. Um, so uh, it, we now have time for question and answer. There are uh, roving mics. Um, so if you can, if you can yeah, put your hands up if you want to speak. And when the mic comes to you, if you can just say who you are and then ask your question. And I think you're the first one there. Monica Magdalena Berber. First of all, I'd like to thank Professor Kimmel for writing back to me. It was very nice of you there. <laughs> um, what I wanted to ask you, what I'd like to ask you is, do you cooperate with uh, prominent feminists, uh, feminists in, in the U USA, in, mm -hmm. uh, like Professor Catherine McKinnon, who, who was our guest, who was the guest here as well? Sure. Uh, well, yes. Um, the, uh, uh, both organizationally and personally, um, we do uh, cooperate with. Uh, different feminist organizations and different feminist uh, groups and very di and different prominent feminists. I think that many of these uh, f very prominent feminist women um, who run organizations um, have been uh, were have been quite welcoming, especially recently, to men I engaging men. Let me give you one example. If you go to um, those of you who you probably know the vagina monologues, Eve Ensler's uh, work, which is a really a, a, a remarkable and empowering work for women. If you go to her website, vday.org, we, there's a section of it for what are called V-men. Uh, and we, then, uh, I'm one of the organizers of that. And we have a place where men write about their uh, supporting women's sort of sexual empowerment or you know, pr protecting women from trafficking or, or, or sexual slavery or rape or, uh, and, and the like. And so we, we, you know, and it's a place where we kind of talk to each other. Um, within the Ms. Foundation, they've always been extremely supportive of bringing you know, men into this conversation. And particularly now, um, because the, the, the boys and fathers have become uh, those those terms, those ideas, those uh, those groups have become so are are in such political play. To say you are you're four boys in school is now is 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 in danger of becoming anti-feminist or in favor of being of fathers. Imagine you know which group was saying to men, pleading with men, you've got to be more involved as a father. You know for so many years, and now the word to be four fathers is almost to be anti-feminist. So these groups have, has, have realized we have to hold on to these terms because to be feminist is to be f forefathers, forefather involvement. Of course it is. You know, equal involvement makes a certain amount of sense. So yes, um, and uh, personally, uh, I found uh, 
that my friendships with, 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 with several you know, uh, feminist women have been really sustaining friendships for me you know, over, over the course of my life. And I always, you know, they vet my work, they read, they read things that I, I write, they often endorse them, I'm happy to have that. Um, and, uh, but I think, and, and the other place where I think it's really happening is not so much with the stars. You know, it's very nice that, you know, I have, Gloria Steinem endorses one of, you know, my book, that, that's very nice. But um, in the young feminist blogosphere, in, you know, on Feministing, on Jezebel, on all of the different websites where young feminists in their 20s are writing and talking about these issues, there's quite a different relationship to pro-feminist men, I think. And so there's a real, there's a real kind of engagement and dialogue that I think is quite exciting. You know, I, I, I hear that a lot. That, yeah. Well, I mean, look. I, fair enough. And you, you, you would obviously have been privy to backstage conversations among feminist women that I might not have heard. But here's what I heard: the more public utterances. It's women are angry at inequality, and they get pretty pissed off about masculinity. But they actually are less angry at men, the corporeal beings. And I think that we, men, have often misunderstood, mistaken their anger at gender inequality for hatred of us as men. I don't think, I have not felt that. I felt the former, the anger at inequality, which, you know, which can be quite vi vocal and visceral, but it's not the same as hating men. Um, now, again, you've been, you're privy to backstage conversations that I'm not, so you might have heard something different, but that's what I heard in public. Okay, um, I think I'm going to start taking uh, groups of questions, if that's all right with you. Uh, so, you Diane, you're first, um, and then you, um, and yeah. then at the back Some there back, yeah. in the, uh, yeah. Okay, uh, I'm Diane Perrin's Gender Institute, and thank you very much for your talk. Um, I just wondered, you know, given the contemporary households, uh, not necessarily dual person nor heterosexual. Mm -hmm. I wondered how you extended your analysis from the individual to a social level to address aggregate male power and privilege. Um, oh, I'm going to take them in oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, right. Okay. Well, <laughs> means I have yes, to you might need to scribble it now. Yes. Okay. Okay. Um, I, my name is uh, Raluca Enescu. I'm a graduate student at the Gender Institute, and well, I was uh, reading nomadic subject by Rossi Braidotti these days, and at some point she actually says something like, if I have understood it correctly, that men don't really have a place in feminism, which is a statement that I found like absolutely shocking, to be honest. So my question would be, uh, do you think that feminist groups are open to uh, incorporate men and to a certain extent men's issues that are correlative with women, women's issues and how can men approach feminist movements in this respect? Okay. And then there's one more. Yeah, hi. Um, I, my name's Emily. I'm a master's student in the Gender Institute as well. Um, my question is more relating to uh, the role for a male feminist or a masculinities scholar mm -hmm. with women who don't define themselves as feminists. Um, there's like a lot of talk about how the greatest backlash against feminism is that a lot of women don't think that they're feminists, they don't support the, the cause, all that sort of thing. So yeah. I was wondering how that relates to you and your work and, and how, what, you would, uh, what, 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 do you, what you would see your role in the kind of feminist backlash from women is as well. Um, 
my turn now? Yes, your right. turn now. Yeah, you're allowed to speak. <laughs> All right. Uh, no, no, just it's. Um, let me let me try to answer some of these these, these questions a little bit more broadly. Uh, um, I I think um, there's two there's 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 three different very different questions. First, um, the question of the sort of the non-normative. What what I, what I think we've what we talk about in masculinity studies, of course, is not only is the variations among men differently situated, of course, and um, but what what's interesting to me is that despite many of those differences, uh, by, you know, class differences, race differences, uh, sexuality differences, um, that, uh, that uh, the ideology of masculinity is, is consistent in part across many of those differences. So I think we are differently wrestling with similar kinds of questions. This is not to say that the sort of the heteronormative model is the only model. But because it's the because precisely because it is normative, it's out there in a way that everyone has to sort of cut their own deal with it. So my 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 argument there is 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 um, and this is by the way. Let me just say this is what I do in my work. Um, I uh, it, the, my two big biggest books, my two best known books are, are Guyland, a study of basically white middle class uh, co college students in America today. And Manhood in America, which poses the question of how did heterosexual, white, middle class, native born, um, Protestant masculinity establish itself as, as the hegemonic version of American masculinity against the other versions that were available at the time. So for me, my ish interest is actually to examine the center, to decenter it to name it as just one of many, to, as, as opposed to um, sort of only talking, uh, coming at it from the margins, I want to decenter the center. You know, that's why I say making masculinity visible is about privilege. So I want to know how, how, is this, how does this particular, you know, you can see the cover, this kind of frat boy masculinity, how does, how does that, that wasn't an attempt to get an yeah, ad, yeah. Um, <laughs> but how does this kind of like white frat boy masculinity on American college campuses insinuate itself as the dominant mode when they're only 10% of the campus, right? How does that work? How did that, so, so that's kind of what I try to answer there. Um, now, this question of men have no place in feminism, look, I mean, um, I think, uh, and, and then this other question of sort of uh, what, what do you do with, with, with the women who don't identify or the other people who don't identify as feminists. Um, here's what I, I think. I think, um, I think a lot of times when men first encounter gender equality as an idea and they meet, you know, they talk with feminist women in their lives and they, they get a sense of the kind of, you know, the, the kind of anxieties or fears that women have about their vulnerability around sexual assault or whatever, you know, all of the different sorts of things that, that uh, you know, campus-based women talk about. Well, you know, their first reaction um, to that is, you know, is kind of like the, the cavalry, you know, thanks for bringing this to our attention, we'll take it from here. You know, um, I think a lot of men, you know, men who call themselves feminist or pro-feminist, you know, engage in what I like to call premature self-congratulation. Um, it's a little bit too fast, a little bit too easy for us to simply proclaim, you know, I'm a feminist baby kind of thing. Um, so I think there's a certain suspicion and wariness of that. But I, and so my position on this is that men ought to be, that men's position relative to the feminist movement the most honorable position for us is basically to be the gentleman's auxiliary, which is to say, this is your movement, 
but it also affects us and very deeply, very profoundly, and well. And so we want to support this. And there are some things that we can actually do. Some things maybe that we can do that you can't do. For example, um, you know, there are men all over the United States who work in batterers, batterers intervention projects in which court mandated, that is to say men who've been convicted of domestic violence, uh, violence against women, um, are, go to these therapy groups and it's men who run them. They are doing that work as a, a, utterly accountable to the domestic violence movement, right? To the anti-violence movement. But they're doing it in a way that says, we can do this. We need to talk to these men, right? Now, that's a, I, to my mind, that's a very honorable kind of relationship to feminism. It doesn't say, you know, we'll take it, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll take it over. But it does say, you know, if I represent, quote, objectivity, I'm still faced with the existential choice. What do I do with that? Do I pretend it's not true? Do I become utterly self-effacing as a result? Or do I say, no, I can use this, and I go, and I go talk to other men about, the, about these kinds of issues. So I do, personally, I do workshops with, with, with men and things like that about these kinds of issues. Now, you, you raise a really good point about the sort of men who, or, or young people who, who don't identify as feminists at all. Here's what my students say. Feminism was a great idea. It was your generation's idea, and you won. Thank you so much. We can do anything we want. We can have any career we want. We can go to medical school and law school and, and, you know, and balance work and family and have orgasms. We can do everything. Thank you. Right? We won. And so, and in a way, my, and, and we often say, you know, we, we, faculty members often complain that our students have this sort of, I'm not a feminist but. And the, I'm not a feminist but phrase. Now, I, I tend to be a fairly optimistic person. Um, the, the I'm not a feminist but phrase, what we, always, what we always focus on is the I'm not, I'm not a feminist. I think we do ourselves a disservice if we forget the but part. But I happen to support every single thing they support. <laughs> every single policy initiative, I'm down with that. But I'm not a feminist. So my feeling is that in some respects, when my students who are 19 years old tell me that they won and that they can do anything that they want and that feminism was, was, was my generation's issue, in a funny way, they, they, may be, they may be right in their lives because they do feel like women run the show on campus and everything is great and they can do anything because they haven't done it yet. So their idea that they can do anything they want is utterly aspirational. 10 years later, later they come back and go, boy, were you right? Wow, all that sexual harassment shit in the workplace? Unbelievable, right? But they didn't think it was going to happen. Before, you know, so, so what I'm saying is, you know, it's not so unreasonable. And the part that I think we need to focus on politically is the, is the, is the part after I'm not a feminist. Because the word feminist has been, has been the, the, the subject of such a steady, relentless onslaught to discredit it for such a long time that the word itself is problematic. Because it, you know, women will say, I'm not a feminist um, because I like men, or I'm straight, or I shave, or whatever. <laughs> I mean, seriously, you hear this. And, but I support everything they stand for. So I think we need to fo fo focus on the, on the latter. Um, and, uh, and engage with, with where, the, the, you know, because the other thing is that my, my, my female students, for example, do know about women's vulnerability. They do know about safety issues. They do police each other. They do talk about how late they can work in the library, what streets you can walk down, which parking lots you can park your car in. They do know about that. 
So there are places, there are still pockets of this inequality that they can, that they, that they can see. And when, when they start to think about those, they go, well, that's not right. Oh, welcome to the movement, you know. <laughs> okay, thanks. So um, in the, the middle there... Now I've got a lot. Yeah, yeah. Um, the middle there with the glasses, uh, middle row with the glasses there. Yeah, mm -hmm. have you got your hand up again? Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. Um, and then um, second row there, the grey shirt, and then then in the middle. We'll just take three, and then let me just That's line of the others. Okay. Hi, I'm Sarah Yassine. Um I graduated from the Gender Institute a few years ago. Um, I was wondering how your work as an activist has been shaped by um, the recent push from you know the lovely uh, Tea Party types for traditional values and kind of um, sort of that whole dialogue. Um, how has your work been shaped by that? And as a second part to that, um, how, how do you advise um, individuals such as myself who um, might be engaged in those kind of dialogues um, without, I don't know, eating my passport? Um. Okay. okay. Yeah, no, I'm, not, I'm ready at that. Hello, my name is Tim Hollins. I'm a member, of, uh, an interested member of the general public working in the corporate world. Uh, I'd like it if you could talk a bit more about the consequences of men doing more housework and childcare. Uh, you said that there were three consequences for the kids. They're healthier, happier, and they do better at school. What I'm interested in is for the men and the mother, the fathers and the mothers in those partnerships, what does it do for their career prospects? Many mm -hmm. men, of course, are very concerned that if they spend more time at home, uh, they will actually fail or, or not get on so well career-wise. Yeah. But perhaps the argument is that being happier and healthier, they will actually do better. And what would it mean also for their partners who have more time, perhaps, to develop their own careers? Mm -hmm. okay. yeah. um, just, oh, I'm Wendy Sigal from the Gender Institute. Um, just an observation, really. Um, First observation, unfortunately, uh, I'm a quantitative social scientist, so I'm a bit more skeptical about the causality underlying some of those associations you reported, even though part of me thinks they're sensible. Uh, but what I was really pleased to see was that you were focusing on synergies. And I think one of the dangers of getting, one of the dangers with the way the politics has been conducted in the past and part of what fuels I think some of the questions people have asked is that there's been so much focus on women looking like men mm. that there hasn't been enough attention to the rewards that men get from behaving like women. Mm -hmm. So much of the discussion was about care as being devalued and unimportant and women should have careers and housework was drudgery. Right. It's the worst sales job in the world. Women stood up politically and said, we want to look like men, we want careers, without ever saying, actually, you know, if you do what we do, you might actually be happier. And I would really applaud what you were doing, which is standing up and saying, actually having a balanced life and having a career, but also enjoying spending time with kids and doing the things that are historically characterized as what women did is actually something that is good to do, it's rewarding, and it's intrinsically um, a valuable thing to do. So, if, you know, mm. give it a try rather than have it forced on you as some kind of zero-sum game. Mm. Okay. Um, so, uh, how do we engage with uh, the, the right wing? Um, um, I think we, uh, 
you know, um, Andrew Dworkin once had, had this uh, argument that, that um, things could be real but not necessarily true. I think their anger is real. Um, and I think uh, it may not be, they may not have an accurate analysis of their situation, but their anger is real and palpable. And I think it's important to, to sort of look at the, you know, to sort of engage with, um, with those kinds of groups about um, what's making them so unhappy. Um, you know, one of the things that, uh, that I, I was shocked by, do you remember the Promise Keepers some years ago, the evangelical religious right-wing masculinity groups that were very, very traditional, you know, I will promise uh, to uh, be a really good father and really and bring home, not drink and not, you know, not sleep around, not do all these bad things that men do. In return for that, you will stay home, not go to college and, and raise my children. And, for, and, and I was, you know, and, and many of us were like, and women are signing up for this, right? But if you think about it, the traditional patriarchal bargain for a lot of these women in this, situated in these, in these situations wasn't a bad deal at all. They would stay, you know, they would be married to somebody who was reliable, would, wouldn't drink and, you know, whore around and stuff. Not a bad deal. So there was a, the women's group was called the Promise Reapers. So I think I think it's important to engage with that anger. Um, you know, I think many of us feel that that the that the Tea Party anger and the Occupy anger um, are, are are really mirror images of each other in many ways. Um, they're both genuinely populist. Um, and the thing about populism as a political movement is it, it, populism is is um, populism isn't an ideology of, of the left or right. Populism is an emotion. Populism can move to the left. Think Spanish anarchists. Populism could move to the right. Italian fascists. Both populist movements. So I think that there's a important it, it, that emotion is important to, to 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 be for us to be looking at, which is what I'm trying to do. Actually, the book I'm writing now is called Angry White Men. So it's about that anger uh, and and to try to, to gender it. Now about the career thing, you're absolutely right. So and and this is something that I've been I've been thinking about for a long time. Some years ago. Um, you know, this is even before the Family and Medical Leave Act, which is our version of parental leave in the U.S. You know, four whole weeks unpaid. Fantastic. This is a big breakthrough in 1995 under Clinton. Um, this is the best we got. Before that, there was nothing. In fact, as you probably know, there are only five countries that offer no paid parental leave to either parent. They are... Lesotho, Swaziland, Papua New Guinea, Suriname, and the United States. <laughs> now, so let me say something. So, so in 1993, I was having this conversation with the editors of the Harvard Business Review, and they said, you know, there's all this stuff about parental leave and men taking parental leave, and you know, those Scandinavian countries, who would want that? You know, and so, and here's what they say. In, in, American, in, in the U.S., 1% of, of companies offer paid parental leave to, to men, because everything is corporate-based. And in those companies, only 1% of men take it. So there's no demand. Why should a company offer a benefit that no, for which there's no demand? So I said, you know what? I think there's something else going on here. Let me, let me go talk to them. So I went to companies that actually offered parental leave to men, those 1%. And I talked to men who had recently had children. And I said to them, did you take parental leave? And they said, well, I thought about it. And I went to my, co my, but my colleague said, I guess you're not committed to your career, are you? And I, my supervisor said, uh, well, sure, you can take parental leave. We do offer it, but uh, you'll never make partner. Uh, we'll put you on the daddy track. No problem. We can do that. And then one guy told me, 
he worked in a very, very large corporate law firm, you know, 400 lawyers. He said he went to the managing partner because he was going to take parental leave. And the managing partner sort of, you know, leaned over the desk at him and, and you know, took the pen. He sort of described it and he said, went like this and said, listen, I am 62 years old and I have three children, grown children and I cannot, sitting here today, tell you their birthdays. There are some sacrifices you're going to have to make for this job. And that was the moment he said, I knew my days at that firm were numbered. And he left it, and with several other refugees, they founded a little boutique law firm where they all have pictures on their desk of their children and they all... So, okay, so, so, what, what, so this is important, okay? Because what, here's what the research on women's career advancement has found. The catalyst research, for example. What is the single greatest barrier to women's rising in corporations? The behavior and attitudes of men. What is the single greatest barrier to men taking the living the lives they want to live? The behavior and attitudes of other men. So, this is a clear alliance moment. And, there, you know, so it seems to me that, of course, we think of all of these sorts of things in a corporate model. There are actually countries, even in Europe, that think of them in terms of state policy, like use or lose policies around parental leave, to encourage that uptake so that men actually do, it doesn't cause career suicide. Still today, even in places where it doesn't cause career suicide, there is still the implication that you're not enough of a real man. So these are important issues. I think obviously state mandates and state policies are going to be, uh, uh, obviously facilitate men's experience of that. So then, so let me turn finally to, the, to this last point, because I think it's a really interesting observation and it relates to this. Because you so talked about, you, you, you used the word synergies. And what inspired me to think a lot about these sorts of things was Lawrence Summers. You remember Lawrence Summers, the former president of Harvard, who said, the reason he lost his, he, he had to resign, he said at a conference, he was trying to puzzle out, why is it that there are so few women at the absolute top of the sciences and math, at the very, very top institutions? Oh, sure, you know, state schools, whatever. But I'm talking, he thought about the, the absolute premier elite, the Harvard, MIT, Chicago kinds of places. Why are there so few women at the absolute top? And we heard this, that he speculated that it might be something about biology. But he, what he actually said was there might be something biological, that sort of mothering thing, that keeps women from working the 80 hours a week that you have to work in order to establish your career at that level as a top level physicist or mathematician at a premier place. And the right question is what person would, I sat down and did the math, okay, 24 hours in a day, seven days a week. If you work 80 of those hours, and let's say you sleep seven a night, and let's say you spend two hours a day for cooking, eating, conversation with your family and sex and, and that it takes you a half hour each way to get to work. You basically have, in the course of a week, about seven hours left, right? What person would sign up for this? The interesting response of a lot of women was, you know, I'll do it. And then a lot of people said, wait a minute, that idea is crazy. So to live a more balanced life is a human question. And and that, that, that to use the male model, can women just be more like men and sign up for 80-hour weeks? Um, you know, what happens in the, the American, in our professions, of course, is that the timing of careers is timed to a male clock. 
So we front load all the heaviest work. So when you're in medical school and you're an intern and resident, that's when you have to spend all your time in the hospital. Or when you're a law student and you're working for those first few years as an associate, that's when you have to be billing 60 billable hours a week. Or when you're untenured and you're trying to make tenure and you have to work you know, for seven years publishing all the time just you know, to sort of make enough, uh, get enough publication for tenure. And then suddenly you're like 38 and you go, oh my god, I forgot to have kids. You know, so. So it's unreasonable for both women and men. And that's, I think, the, the, the thing that we're also beginning to understand. That that's, those are unreasonable standards for anyone. And a reasonable person would say, it's not whether or not you're willing to do it. It's who in their right mind should be willing to do that. Okay. So um, at the front there. Um, and I think there was somebody at fifth row at the back. That woman in the back. I, I, like, yes, yes, like, no, I, like, yes. Yeah, you're, you're sort of like fifth grade. Ooh. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. So, so I mean, back row first, and then those two people, um, fifth and fourth row at the back. Yeah. Name is Francisco Cosmontiel from the International Development Research Center in Canada. Uh, from the study you used to illustrate uh, your argument. There seems to be an instrumental underlying on why men should embrace gender equality. In other words, men should embrace gender equality because it's good for a number of reasons. Uh, mm -hmm. But my question is, where is a gender equality argument per se? Why uh, gender equality should be achieved even if if not so good for men or even mm. not so? Well, where is the gender equality argument and not only the instrumental one? And an, another quick question, why men working on masculinities have been less successful in creating a political movement with the transitional power of feminism? Transformational power of feminism. Can you say a little bit more about what you mean by that? I'm just... Uh, yeah, why um, the masculinities political movement has been far less successful does, than feminism as a political movement? Okay, so, so there's uh, at the back there, with the glasses, and then behind, so those two up there, yeah. And I'll get you in the next one. Hello. Hi. Um, saw a clip on YouTube the other day, a clip from The Talk on uh, an American television program. It was um, an all-female panel and an all-female audience led by Sharon Osbourne, of all people, and they were laughing and giggling and cackling and over this story of a woman who had um, cut off her husband's penis in revenge and thrown it into the, um, the, the rubbish bin or the disposal unit. And uh, they found it hilarious and they were saying, oh, it's a fabulous act. Um, and what I have always wondered is how can we actually get women to see the, in, sort of the entrenched discrimination and misandry that many, not all, but many women feel or are sort of socially conditioned to feel towards men, which I think holds back both men and women. Okay, and then just behind you. Um, my question is, we talked a lot about men in relation to women and feminism, but actually it's about gender and men's studies, and you know, how do you expect um, men to want to change or even question their role or question their gender and all that lies within it if they are entitled, as you say, and they don't question themselves? How do you get that to really be a, a place? 
things change. Okay. Uh, in reverse order. Um, so the, uh, the, the, the question about that engagement, I see where, where I think a large number of men are uh, in, in the, you know, what I've, what, what I've uh, observed for, for some time is that the ideology of masculinity, I do these workshops, for example, and I've done, you know, thousands and thousands of young men, and I ask them basically what it means to be a man. And I've done it here in Britain, and I've done it in, uh, in about 17 other countries, and I've done it in virtually every state in the, in the United States. And I get the same, pretty much the same answer, you know, be hard, stoic, strong, powerful, never show your feelings, never cry, you know, be, you know get rich, get laid. I mean, just those, just constantly, right? Basically, the, the, the sort of the traditional ideology of masculinity is you would, um, you know, um, one, one psychologist once came up with the four basic rules of manhood. So if anybody has any doubts or questions, you could just memorize these. these this is enough. Just number one, no sissy stuff. You can never do anything that remotely hints of femininity. That's number one. Number two, be a big wheel. We measure masculinity by the size of your paycheck, wealth, power, status. We have a bumper sticker that you may have seen at some point that says, he who has the most toys when he dies wins. Now that's the second rule. Third rule, be a sturdy oak. What makes a man a man is that he's reliable in a crisis. What makes him reliable in a crisis is that he resembles an inanimate object, you know, <laughs> a rock, a pillar. Um, and the fourth rule, give him hell, exude an aura of daring and aggression. You know. So those are the four basic rules. Now, now the thing is that, if you, if you, it, that most men sort of have some of those ideas in some formation sort of swirling around in their heads. And their actual daily lives look increasingly different from that as they say they want to be really good fathers, as they say they want to really be involved with their children, if they say they want to have good relationships with other men, with, uh, with, with, with friends, with partners, um, with women in their lives. And so what we're finding increasingly is that, the, the, that there's a gap between this ideology of masculinity on the one hand, um, which is pretty, you know, unrealizable to some extent, and then also their daily lives, which are increasingly at variance with that. So in that gap, between their daily lives and this ideology, I believe that men are kind of heading for some kind of crisis about that. What I would say to all this entitlement stuff is, how's it working out for you? Um, because mo a large numbers of men are not particularly happy with, the, with this. So you have a lot of products. I mean, Madison Avenue, advertising industry, recognizes this gap between ideology and practices. Because that's what they, they jump right in and they say, you know, this light beer is more masculine than this light beer. So if you drink this one, you'll feel really manly. This car, and light beers aren't manly. So this is tough to do. You know, this, you know, this chewing gum, this car, this everything is more, you know, you want to pump up your manhood, buy this, buy this. You know, so guys, because we're at, because of that, that, that's an attempt to bridge it. But here's what I find um, consistently is that in very quietly and without any ideological fanfare at all, Men's lives are changing and becoming more gender equal in their day-to-day -day lives. Not because they're suddenly embracing feminism, but rather because they're, you know, fr frankly, they're more egalitarian in their marriages because they need the money. Because it makes certain sense to sort of share these sorts of things because they want to. So what I'm suggesting to you is that that, that traditional notion um, it, uh, that, um, you know, that, that men will resist this because of this sense of entitlement. Yes, there are many, and that's what I'm documenting, that this idea of this 
entitled, aggrieved entitlement, I call it, that so many is what fuels a lot of the anger out there um, at women and at gender equality. But I also think that in men's daily lives, actually, there's actually a significant change. One of the best illustrations of that is that for the first time in American history, men's attitudes, uh, men's homophobic attitudes have now dropped to the level of women's. You know, that men were always more homophobic than women, by far. Not anymore. They're equal. Homophobia is even declining among men. You know, and that's been the, the major buttress for years, right? So what I'm suggesting is all that entitlement is, is not eroding. It's, there's an increased tension. Let me turn to the misandry question. Um, look, Sharon Osbourne is no model of feminism. <laughs> nor, is, nor is the glee that on television that, that, that you know, celebrity women who have no politics at all right, would celebrate you know, sort of the, the, uh, the castration of, or you know, the, the cutting off some husband's penis, like, ha, 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 we're getting back at them. I think, you know, I, I mean, I don't think that that's an index of anything. Um, to me, I actually think that um, misandry as a neologism um, is, a, is, is a mistake. I don't believe that it, is, it operates nearly at the, at the level that misogyny does, because it doesn't have the entire institutional apparatus behind it of every major institution which basically denigrates women. So I don't think that you could possibly pose this, well, you know, it's like white, it's like black racism. Well, sure, people of color are pretty pissed off, but they don't have the institutional apparatus to enforce their being pissed off all the time. So I think misandry is a little bit too easily equated with misogyny in a way that I think is disingenuous. So I don't think that misandry is, is really the big problem. One of the things that we talk about in, in Guy's Guide to Feminism is we, we sort of try to, try to talk, about, um, talk about that. It's act, there's an, actually an entry on misogyny and misandry. Um, so, so, and, but I wouldn't be looking at, you know, sort of mainstream TV for girls, for, you know, for women, ma mainstream women, as a kind of feminist index of where our culture is. One more thing about that. Um, there are people who do say that, you know, one of the ways you can see misandry, of course, is um, the treatment of men on, like, sitcoms or uh, in the media. They're constantly being vilified and constantly being trashed and constantly being criticized and object of so much fun, you know, and so, so, so much critical humor that obviously the, the media have been taken over. You may not know this. The media have been completely taken over by this very small feminist cabal that hates men. <laughs> now, here's what I would say about this. You know, this is where my studies of 17th century French and English tax policy make some, are, are of some use. Because the truth is, if you look at the Middle Ages, you know, there, were, there were media images, there were media moments called carnival, you know, where the world turned upside down and the peasants were running around making fun of the aristocrats, right? The, you know, ceremonial moments. But nobody ever said that they had, you know, aristophobia. And nobody ever thought that that was really a powered. In fact, people's analysis now of, of those moments is that's how the aristocracy maintained their power. Every now and then, we give them a little bit of you know a little bit of this. They can laugh at us, and we stay and, and we stay unchallenged. 
I believe that that's the function of these kinds of TV shows. They make fun of men who are failed patriarchs, but it does nothing to undermine patriarchy. So I actually think um, that it's very much like medieval carnival, um, in which you know, nobody ever said, oh, the serfs are taking over, right? Because look, they're making fun of us, right? It's a very limited space, and it actually serves for the reproduction of the whole. That would be my, my now. Let me turn to this last question. So what if it's not, so what if it's not in men's interest? We still said, you know, it's still right. Yes, of course that's true. Um, um, that that uh, even if it weren't in our interest, um, it, would be the, it would be right and fair and just, even if we lost. But I'm trying to suggest that it, we don't have to look at it as a loss. We don't, because in fact, I believe it also improves the quality of our lives. Now, at the aggregate level, there, if, you know, there's X number of positions, and if we have, like Norway, a quota about how many women you know, have to be on boards, there are some unqualified men who won't be on those boards and unqualified women who will, right? Because, you know, they what about all those unqualified women? There's a lot of unqualified men on those boards. Um, so, yes, it's true. But at the individual personal level, in your day-to-day -day life, I feel like, now, so the ethical imperative, it's right, it's fair, it's just, it should be enough. But I found it's not. In talking to large numbers of men, in my day-to-day -day work, I find that talking to them about the ethical imperative doesn't really engage them. Maybe it connects to that sense of entitlement. Maybe it connects to the invisibility of privilege. But they don't, it doesn't connect. But when I say, you know, you'll, you'll be happier if you do this, then, there's a kind of, okay, it's not so scary, it's not so threatening. So I'm looking, look, as, a, as an activist, I'm looking for all of the entry points that I can find for men to enter the feminist conversation. Because by and large, we have felt that there's this, there's this feminist conversation going on among women for 30, 40 years, and it has nothing to do with us. So it's in a closed room, we sort of peek in every now and then, say, oh, still hating us, still laughing at cutting off our penises, whatever. But, you know, but, but we don't think it has anything to do with us. And there I think it does. So there I do think that even if it were you know, not in our individual interests, it still has a lot to do with us and we ought to be paying attention. Right? I do think it has a lot to do with us, but that's, that, that's you know, a, a different thing. Now, um, it's counterintuitive to be a man who supports gender equality, to be, to me it's, it's, it's sort of strange, but um, to be a white person who supports racial equality, to be a, a heterosexual person who supports sexual equality, all of, so, so my feeling is that one of the reasons it's not as successful is because it, 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 it seems to be a kind of counterintuitive move. Uh, of course women would support this, but you know, it's, you know, it's sort of like taking part, it's career suicide, right? More, could be. Um, so I, I think that that's one of the reasons why it's been, you know, the, 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 the movement has been less successful in the way that you describe it. But let me just reframe that for just a moment. I don't think we measure success for masculinity studies by the number of academic departments that form, that study it. Of course not. What matters to me is that in women and gender studies, masculinity is now discussed. And it's discussed in, in a way that uses critical race theory, queer theory, and feminist theory to understand men's lives. And I think that's the success of, the, of, of, that, of this academic field. The real success of it is to sort of name that there's a there there, so to speak, and that 
we can talk about this and we can engage with it with the same kinds of lenses that we've looked at the lives of women. To me, that's the success of it. Now, I'm conscious that there's a number of people who would still like to ask questions, but I think in fairness to Michael, uh, we need to call it to an end there. As, this, as I said at the beginning, there is a reception uh, after this uh, at the Gender Institute on the fifth floor of Columbia House. And uh, do, do feel free to come and ask, ask Michael the further questions we haven't been able to, uh, to address. Thank you. Yet.